But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side and make it with lower second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals and seven pairs of the birds of the air, male and female, to keep their kind alive upon the face of all the earth. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Go into the ark, you and all your household. For in seven days, I will send rain upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. The windows of the heavens were opened. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and every bird of every sort, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. 
the flood continued 40 days upon the earth. prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered the waters prevailed above the mountains covering them 15 cubits deep died that moved upon the earth birds cattle beasts and all swarming creatures that swarm upon the earth and every man everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died left and those that were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed upon the earth a hundred and fifty days but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark and God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed the rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. But in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest upon the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made and sent forth a raven. And it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot she returned to him to the ark for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth so he put forth his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him he waited another seven days and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark the dove came back to him in the evening and lo in her mouth a freshly plucked olive leaf so no one knew that the waters had subsided from the earth then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove and she did not return to him anymore in the six hundred and first year in the first day of the month the waters were dried from off the earth, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, 
On the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God said to Noah, go forth from the ark, you and your wife and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. with you every living thing that is with you that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar and when the Lord smelled the pleasing odor the Lord said I will never again curse the ground because of man for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth neither will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done while the earth remains seed time and harvest cold and heat summer and winter day and night shall not cease be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the air upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hands they are delivered every moving thing that lives shall be food for you and as i gave you the green plants i give you everything only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For your life, blood, I will surely require a reckoning. Of every man's brother, I will require the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. I establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you. For all future generations, I set my bow in the cloud. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will look upon it and remember the everlasting covenant. This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. Right, so uh, Noah and uh, the flood. Uh, so uh, this week we're looking at what happened and next week we're looking at its significance. You could say that today we're looking at the historicity of it 
and next week, the theology of it. Theology doesn't mean it's irrelevant. Theology just means knowledge of God. So we discern from this something about God and his dealings with us. But when we uh, come to look at Noah and the flood, we discover that um, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Or really, we should say, if we're going to quote Alexander Pope correctly, a little learning is a dangerous thing. Just as we think we know the quote, we think we know the story. But do we? See, for many of us, we know the W.H. Smith storybook version, where there is probably no God, just a floating zoo, no mention of sin, because that's just not PC, and uh, in any case, it's rather confronting and humbling if we give it any serious attention. There's no disobedience, no opposition to God, no violence, and no judgment. Even the Christian versions of children's storybooks do rather soft pedal on this. Why? Well, I think it's because we're rather defensive about a God of judgment who wipes out significant numbers of people. Yet, I think we should be upfront about this. Justice exercised against evil is surely good news and not bad news. If there is a God of this world, then he must do something about evil, which causes so much suffering or cruelty. What kind of God could be indifferent to that? And what's more, the God of the Bible doesn't just judge and punish. He actually exercises grace. So he gives these people 120 years, we saw last week, to repent, to turn to him, to amend their ways, to avail themselves of forgiveness and grace, and to turn things around and get back on track. And at the end of the flood narrative, he promises never to destroy the earth again, but gives people, for, gives people again time for amendment of life until he calls time up at, of course, the end of time. Now, I guess for others of us, it's not actually the, the children's book story, but Hollywood that we use for our updating of the biblical account. Noah, with Russell Crowe, as Noah manages to get most things wrong, but I'm told that it's good on violence, unlike the kiddies' versions. However, Noah did not drink hallucinogenic tea in order to hear God's directions. Noah's sons weren't without wives on the ark. In Aronofsky's uh, fanciful version, only one of Noah's sons, Shem, has a wife, played by Emma Thompson. There were no stowaways on the ark. Aronofsky adds preposterous uh, drama to his version of Noah by having the evil warlord Tubal Cain, who's played by Ray Winston, sneak on board the ark and hide in the shadows with the uh, sleeping bears and goats. And he then attempts to kill Noah with the help of Noah's son, Ham, who's angry that his dad didn't arrange to find him a wife before the rain started. Also, Noah didn't get help from giant rock creatures when he built the ark. And just to cap it all, um, 
Noah was not a deranged killer bent on stopping his family from reproducing. The second half of Noah is the worst part. After the flood begins, the man God uses to save all the animals and humans from destruction decides God doesn't want the human race to survive, and he becomes a psychopath and threatens to kill his daughter-in-law's child when she gives birth. Now, of course, the biblical Noah would never have tried to prevent the repopulation. Noah understood he and his family had been saved and then commissioned to replenish the earth. Still, as I say, it's good on violence. And they wheel out Anthony Hopkins, who probably didn't need too much makeup for this particular <laughs> film. Uh, but I suppose it augments his pension, doesn't it? And Emma Watson shows that there is life for an actress after Harry Potter. So, um, now the film isn't very helpful if you want to find out what really happened. In Iran, they've banned it as being un-Islamic. So, we're um, looking at the historicity of it, um, and next week the significance. So, I just wanted to cover these things. The building of the ark, the flood, whether it's universal or local, where it might have happened, and a comparison with some of the other ancient Near Eastern flood stories, and to see whether they're significant or not. So the ark, what did it look like? Well, it was rectangular. You can see that from the dimensions. If you look to page eight, as I said, you can choose whichever dimensions you kind of um, are most familiar with. I think I realized watching Alistair do the three minutes that whilst I realized the children think metric, somewhere between Alistair's age and mine is the sort of turning point or the switch over for whether you think imperial or whether you think metric. I think... I'm an imperial thinker. It's made of gopher wood in the, uh, that's the word. I noticed the NIV tells us it's cypress, which is probably what it is, they think, but uh, no one knows what gopher wood is. It's the only time the word occurs in the Bible, so how do you know what it means if you only got one instance of it, really? They didn't have a dictionary to kind of let you know. It's got many rooms. It's um, covered in... Oh, sorry. Oops. It's covered in pitch, um, and uh, it's got that was to waterproof it. And Noah's given four specific directions. First of all, its dimensions. It is um, 300 by 50 by 30 cubits, which translates at 18, 18 inches to the cubit, to 400 feet long, 75 feet high, and 45 feet wide. It's got a kind of, um, I suppose. Um, it's kind of, kind of like a gazebo effect on the top of the ark. So you've got a roof, and then you've got a clear story all the way round. There's a large door for the entry and exit, and it's got three decks. The top deck would have the family and animals, and the other two decks were to store the food and water, which um, also would have helped with the stability of the boat. So it's big enough for all that God wanted to save, and enough food and water for the duration, and it's going to be stable enough to withstand quite an upheaval. Well, if you're struggling to imagine it, stop, because someone's built it. So there you are. I think he's a Dutchman, and you get some idea of the size by the people walking by. And this is that kind of um, top-level clear story. 
Um, so gives you a picture of that that he's made. There's the deck with the animals on. Um, and there's another picture of it if you want to take it in. So it's certainly feasible to build. Now, the second question is whether the flood is universal or whether it's local. Did it, in other words, cover the whole world or was it only a certain part of the ancient Near East? Well, in favour of a universal flood, there is, of course, the language. If you look at Genesis 7, 17 to 23, for example, in front of you, you'll be able to read that the, quote, ark floated high above the earth. Uh, then in uh, 19 and 20, all the mountains were covered by over 22 feet of water. So there's 22 feet of water above the highest point. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. There's also um, flood accounts from all over the world. There's quite a lot in Mesopotamia, Hebrew, Sumerian, Akkadian, Babylonian, Assyrian, and in the rest of the world. There are flood accounts in faraway places like China, India, Hawaii, Mexico. And yet, interestingly, Egypt, which would have been used to having an annual flood of the Nile, has no flood story. Flooding is widespread throughout the world, even today. But that is not necessarily evidence for a worldwide flood at the same time. We also have to think, can we credibly think of water covering the earth to six miles high, which is what it would take in order to cover Everest? Where would all that extra water come from? Where would it all go? Just imagine the water pressure and you'd surely expect that there'll be some evidence left of that massive amount of pressure. Well, does the biblical account portray a worldwide flood? You see, in, in, in favour of a more localised flood, we look again to uh, the issue of language. And we look elsewhere in the Bible. Look to the writings, for example, of Luke. In his Gospel, in chapter 2, he does write that all the inhabited earth went to be taxed, or the whole earth went to be taxed in the authorised version. But do you think he had in mind the Maoris or the Chinese? The Roman Empire was extensive, but it didn't go that far. Or if you take in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, verse 5, where he writes about God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And then he lists just 15 nations. You see, we don't always understand and use language absolutely literally, do we? All does not always mean every. And then there's the question of uh, the, vo the, the, the vocabulary. Haretz in Hebrew means earth or it means land. The name of their probably most widely known daily newspaper is called Haretz, the land. It says in the land of Israel or the land of Egypt. The Hebrew word tebel means whole world, but interestingly, it's not used in the flood account. So I think the evidence points to a local flood 
albeit possibly quite extensive. Well, how does it compare with some of the other ancient Near Eastern accounts of floods? Well, let's get clear about which civilizations we're uh, talking about. In the um, bottom right hand uh, corner, just uh, where the uh, Persian Gulf kind of meets Iraq and Iran, you have the Sumerian area. That's the oldest of the civilizations. And, in fact, Abraham's home was in Ur. And there's in the central part of what is today Iraq, around Baghdad, there was the Babylonian Empire. At different periods of times, these have uh, ascendancy. And then in the north, there is the Assyrian Empire. And in the very north, in present-day Turkey, there's the Hittite and Hurrian Empires. And all of these had um, stories of the flood in their libraries. Now how do these help us? The Hebrew ones are passed down on leather scrolls. The ancient Near Eastern flood epics are chiseled onto clay in a cuneiform script in various languages. There are various kind of accounts from different uh, civilizations. The oldest is about 2300 BC, but there are various variants. And there are, of course, copies copied down the various uh, centuries. They're written in cuneiform. They're written in Sumerian, Akkadian, which is the language of Babylonia, Assyrian. And as I said, they crop up in uh, Hurrian and Hittite empires. The most famous version that you may have even heard of is called the Gilgamesh Epic. And, it's the, and um, a copy of that um, has been found... The copy is dated from about 1200 BC, and it was found in Megiddo in Israel. So it's quite extensive, this kind of, these accounts of the flood. But how do these accounts of the flood compare with that of the Genesis account? For example, if you um, compare them, um, they are four different, slightly different accounts of uh, Thing. So who caused the flood? Well, in the Hebrew account, there is a moral God who punishes wicked humans. In the ancient Near Eastern accounts, there is a collection of capricious gods who are really hacked off with the racket that the humans down on earth are causing. They want to have a bit of a doze, and they're making too much noise. So the flood is the solution to, to that. How did the humans know that the flood was coming? Well, in the biblical account, God sent prophets to warn them. In the ancient Near Eastern account, the gods weren't going to tell them anyway, but one god happened to be a bit friendly, and he tipped off one guy who uh, was able to kind of build a, some kind of boat and save himself. Um... What's the principal characteristic of the heroes in each of the accounts? In the biblical one, it's Noah is a righteous person. That doesn't mean that he's perfect. And, but in the ancient Near Eastern accounts, it's the intelligence that is praised. The dimensions of the ark, I've mentioned them. You know, a 450 foot, 75 foot high, 45 foot wide boat looks a bit like a container ship, doesn't it? It's going to float. 
In the ancient Near Eastern accounts, it's 180 feet by 180 feet by 180 feet. It's a cube. It's going to sink. Then there's how long did the flood last for in the biblical account, where we're told there's a specific time. Um, in the ancient Near Eastern accounts, there is no length of time given. What kind of a divinity is there? Well, in the Genesis account, it's monotheistic. There is one God. In the ancient Near Eastern accounts, it is polytheistic. More than one God. And they are expressing a high degree of aggro amongst themselves. There's quite a rivalry going on between them. And what happens when uh, the flood recedes and the boat comes to rest? Well, um, in Genesis, Noah goes out and he sacrifices some of the birds as a thanks offering to God. They weren't sin offerings. They were thanksgiving offerings for salvation. In the ancient Near East, the sacrifice is given to placate the gods because the gods wanted to kill the bloke and he'd survived. So he's trying to kind of suck up to them now that he's actually survived. He's escaped their judgment. And what's the attitude displayed by the writers towards God or their gods? Well, in the ancient Near Eastern texts, they are mocking. They're poking fun at the gods. They really don't, I mean, think they really, well, they just think they're extensions of human beings, really, and they've created them in their own image. And they're mocking, they're poking fun at them. But in the Genesis account, there is respect with a capital R. So, what do we make of them? Are we just... Um, what is their contribution to our understanding of the Bible? Well, here we need to enlist the health of uh, somebody far more qualified than I am to evaluate. Kenneth Kitchen was a professor. He is the Emeritus Professor of Egyptology at Liverpool University. And this is uh, his evaluation. He says, in the folk memory, there had been a particularly massive flood, far more fatal than most floods, and the memory stuck ever after, until it finally entered the written tradition. So he's, uh, he's accepting that a flood on a massive scale in that part of the world really did happen sometime in the past. So it's regarded as a historical event. He says, as to definition, myth or proto-history, it should be noted that the Sumerians and Babylonians had no doubts on that score. They included it squarely in the middle of their earliest historical tradition, with kings before and kings after it. And what's the relationship between these ancient Near Eastern accounts and the biblical one? He says... In detail, the differences are so numerous as to preclude either the Mesopotamian or Genesis accounts having been copied directly from one another. So in other words, they have a shared historical experience, but they're not copied from one another. 
Now, where did it happen? Well, we don't exactly know where the ark was built, but we do know where it ended up. Here's Mount Ararat. That's the biggest one. And, of course, all around is the Ararat region. You get a better idea when you have this kind of uh, higher level view. The point is that we don't have to be so absolutely literalist that we think it has to come to rest on the top of the mountain. It says the mountains of Ararat. So it's the whole kind of territory of Ararat. Now, Ararat is in eastern Turkey, the extreme eastern part of Turkey, a region where Turkey is bordered by Iran, Iraq, Syria, Georgia, and Armenia. Has it been found? Well, someone thinks it has. And uh, just take a note of that. I, don't, I can't even believe that's there, but anyway. Um, but, uh, um, and the reason why is this, that if you kind of look at, that would be, that is thought by somebody to be, you know, the bow, and that's the stern. And actually, the distance between the two is about the same length as the actual arc. And the thought is that this was once up there, but in a mud flow has somehow come down and got dumped there. Um, the most vigorous promoter of this was a self-styled biblical archaeologist. That's because he hasn't got any qualifications. Called Ron Wyatt. And since his first visit in 1977, Wyatt has convinced various scientists to investigate the site. While many of these scientists believe in the flood account, their results, plus surveys carried out by Turkish geologists, have shown convincingly that this boat-shaped object is a natural geologic formation. In other words, it's rock, not kind of wood. Various claims, such as having mapped the subsurface of the structure and discovered a boat, and having discovered wooden and metallic artifacts, have all been found to be false. Some wise words from a Christian archaeologist. No doubt more claims will come to light in the future. We must ask, who is making these claims? And can the details be verified? Considering that the Ararat region has experienced volcanic and glacial activity, the likelihood of finding recognizable remains of an ancient wooden vessel is extremely remote. Therefore, Christians should treat Ark discovery claims with a high degree of skepticism. Well, perhaps enough said on that. So where does that leave us? Well, it rained, but water is also said to come up in Genesis 6:11. All the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of heaven were opened. So it rained from above, but you're getting water bubbling up and flowing in, no doubt. Now, the dark green part of Iraq today is very lowland, and it may be that uh, the sea rose and came in at the same time as it rained. Or another more recent kind of theory is that um, over here is the Black Sea, that water from the Mediterranean Sea burst through the Bosphorus into what was previously a freshwater lake 
and that lake expanded significantly, kind of flooding, obviously, an area which is now some of it underwater. There is some kind of uh, evidence to base these things on, but ultimately, we don't know, and we can't be sure. Either way, whether it's a flood in this area over here, or whether it's kind of up here, the ark would have somehow ended up somewhere around here. So, what of the flood? Perhaps we'll leave the last word with Professor Kitchen. So, an epochally important flood in far antiquity has come down in a tradition shared by both Mesopotamian culture and Genesis 6 to 9, but which find clearly separate and distinct expressions in the written form left us by the two cultures. You see, Christianity is a historic religion. God has communicated and revealed himself in history, in space and time. And so it's important for us, therefore, to be sure of those events in order for us then to move on, as we will next week, to learn of their significance for us. Theology, after all, in Christianity, is based on history, on events on earth that God has caused to happen and with which he's also given his authoritative narrative to. Amen.